This week on Crossing Lane Lines. The way that these athletes or these coaches talked about the crawl itself um, and how the quote-unquote natural movement of what they would call natives, they even use the word Kaffirs to talk about African um, swimmers um, or Indians um, who did what might be like a an early version of what we call the crawl now with the overarm stroke and um, what they call thrashing. And then what happened, at least in the way that these, my, my analysis of what these coaches did, then they, let's see if I can say the right, if I can figure out the right word to say this, then they prioritize and privilege the way that white coaches and swimmers from Australia and in the United States took these natural resources of like Alec Wickman and other black swimmers, um, often unnamed, and special or and um, uh, basically rationalized the stroke and made it modern. And so, with white intelligence and scientific um, rationality, they took the natural resources of BIPOC swimmers and made it into the the crawl stroke, which is the freestyle stroke. The crawl stroke or freestyle is one of the most technically challenging strokes to master. Both the United States and Australia claim to have improved it over the last 100 years. But who founded it? And why is it so important to discuss its origins concerning the subject of whiteness? In part two of a two-part series on this subject, we'll speak to Dr. Matt Hodler, a former D1 swimmer, history professor, and swim scholar about the origins of the stroke and the need to honor its indigenous and African forebearers. All that and more coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. In our last episode, we spoke with social justice educator Jen Fry about whiteness and its impact on sport, in particular with respect to swimming. In this episode, we are delving deeper and concentrating on something very specific, freestyle. Some of you might ask, I fail to see how a stroke might be an indicator of whiteness. But you'd be wrong, very wrong. Since last summer's racial reckoning after the lynching of George Floyd, many swimmers of African descent have been demanding that the predominantly white swimming world acknowledge their own complicity to our country's current racial climate. And there is no better place to begin than with freestyle. Its origins and how it has been co-opted and quantified by the white swim community. Joining us to further the discussion on whiteness and how freestyle plays a large part in it is Dr. Matt Hodler. He is an assistant professor of sports media and communication at the University of Rhode Island. He is a noted swim scholar and former D1 swimmer at Miami University. Dr. Matt Hodler, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much. It's, it's just great to be here. I really enjoy the podcast. Dr. Hodler, this is without a doubt my favorite question to ask of my guests because it always sets up the conversation that follows. When did you first learn to swim and how did you progress to become a D1 swimmer? Uh, yeah, I was excited um, about this question. I'm always interested in what your uh, guests say. Um, I, I honestly don't, to be honest, I don't remember when I first learned to swim. I have like little snippets of, of being in the pool with my brothers. I have two older brothers. Um, and oftentimes it felt like the pool was a babysitter for us. Um, I never at our community pool. Um, but I do always, like, I remember being able to be around pools when I was young, having access to them, having parents that swam. Um, and brothers that swam, and grandparents that swam. Um, so, like, that's obviously sort of like a built-in white privilege thing that um, Jeff Wilsey kind of talks about in his study on pools. Um, but swimming became part of my consciousness when we lived in Oklahoma. So we moved around a lot when I was a kid. In Oklahoma, I moved there when I was five, and we left when I was ten. And we had a neighborhood swim pool. Um, I was, me and my older brothers were driving my parents crazy with all of our energy. Uh, I want to do karate, but we already paid for the pool as part of our neighborhood membership, so that was cheaper for us, obviously. Um, so I, my parents had made me swim when I was six. Uh, I loved it, really enjoyed it, summer swimming. Um, I had some success um, 
even though I wouldn't, I refused from backstrip because I'd watched Jaws way too early in my life. Um, thought Jaws was going to come get me. Uh, but um, I got recruited to for the YMCA team in, um, in Edmond, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. I can't remember exactly which. And then I swam well there, did really well, and then got recruited by a coach to swim for the USA Swim Club there, um, support team there. Um, I played two other sports. I loved baseball and soccer as well. Um, and I noticed that the racial differences in teams we played and teams I was on, um, those were often multiracial teams, still white dominant because I lived in the suburbs in the South. Um, but there was never any, I don't think I had any black swimming teammates ever. And I don't think I swam against another black swimmer in my age group until I think it was 15 in Macon, Georgia, and it was the city of Atlanta Dolphins team. Had just Bir Muhammad, um, was probably their most prominent member. Um, he's a little, he's a lot older than me though. Um, and then we just moved around, and as we moved, because swimming's year-round, um, I just had to drop the other sports basically, and just focus on swimming. Um, trained, um, worked through a few shoulder injuries. Um, and then got uh, recruited by a few other schools. Went to Miami, Ohio, because I liked the coach a lot there, and um, I wanted to try to make a D1. I might have been better off to be a D3 swimmer to swim in nationals. Uh, and then I hurt my shoulder um, pretty badly, my, again, my freshman year, um, at the end of my freshman year, overtraining, uh, and tried to try to out for the next year, uh, but just my shoulder just couldn't hack it, um, and I did not want surgery. Uh, and so I kind of took some time off from the sport, um, helped out with coaching a little bit, did some administrative stuff. And then it didn't, wasn't really until I got my PhD program where I kind of returned to the sport in Iowa and, uh, started teaching it again, started researching it again, um, after my master's degree, uh, where I interviewed Olympic swimmers. In an article that you wrote for a blog entitled swimming as a sporting racial project, you wrote, quote, the harmless or funny idea that black people don't swim hides a racist past and present, and the historic and contemporary overrepresentation of white swimmers at both the elite and adolescent recreational levels in the U.S., as well as the racial discrepancies in drowning rates, exemplifies the unmarked construction and position of whiteness. Close quote. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by this. Yeah. Um... I mean, one reason this isn't funny is the 2014 CDC report that I was citing uh, in that uh, blog, um, the disparity increased when only drowning deaths in swimming pools were considered. Uh, it's from this report. Um, black people age, or children aged 5 to 19 years were 5.5 times more likely to drown in pools than their white peers. And ages 11 to 12, um, they drowned in swimming pools at 10 times the rate of whites. So, like, I, I mean, these jokes, quote unquote, reveal a very serious public health crisis um, that if we increase access to resources and actually um, made swimming lessons a priority, we could really reduce these disparities drastically. Um, and so when I first started writing this blog or writing this blog post that was that came out of a conference paper, which was also part of my dissertation, um, I was thinking about the few if any black swimmers that I swam against at the meets um, and my teammates. And I think I already mentioned this, I swam YMCA or USA swimming for teams in four different states and went to several regional and national meets. So I, I got a snapshot of uh, the swimming, of swimming um, in the country, at least the Midwest and the South um, and the East. Uh, but the jokes were often the first explanation that people gave. And they would say, oh, well, you know, black people don't swim. And they would say it with a wink, but it also was like, we don't need to say any more than that, right? Um, and I don't know if you found this, but I, I've noticed that boring hack jokes are often a sure indicator of the location of power lines. Mm -hmm. So if people are telling these boring hack jokes, generally that means that there's some kind of power inequality there somewhere. Um, and so for this blog, I, I was, I'd read Jeff Wilsey's book. I think you had him on as a guest early on in your um, episode. And, and he has that great book about segregation of pool, public pools. And other scholars have talked about segregation and lack of access to pools as one reason for racial disparities and drowning, but also representation in national teams and USA swimming more generally. And I think 
at least the last numbers, I think you said in the last podcast episode, it's less than 2% of USA Swing members are black, right? Correct. Um, and maybe it's 1.6 or something like that. Uh, and I thought, I thought about looking at this. So to complement that work, um, I thought about looking at the sport itself, like the actual, like what bodies do. Um, and I used this, Ben Carrington as a great sports sociologist who's now at USC in LA, but he used to be at Texas. And it's this racial sporting project. And he looked at Jack Johnson and black and black men athletes, how it was used to racialize in the, in the press, like, here's how we know what blackness is through the construction of these black athletes. And he traced it from Major Taylor, the cyclist, Jack Johnson, uh, the, the boxer, to nowadays you can see these same kind of tropes that are used to um, talk about these black athletes. Um, and a lot of it starts with scientific racism, uh, measuring where's the, trying to find the greatness of black athletes in their bodies. So they used to poke and prod Major Taylor's, who was a great cyclist body, um, Jack Johnson's body, Jesse Owens' body, and other 30s um, track athletes, other boxers. So, like, they, they wanted to locate the greatness in the bodies of these black athletes, right? And we saw it all the way in the 80s and 90s, and even now with people saying, well, the reason why black men, with the racist idea, that the reason why black men are so great at track and field or black women is because of um, their, physic, their innate physicality, right? Um, and so this term, this racial sporting project, was a way to like conceptualize this idea. And I was, I did it to look at the early crossroad to look at whiteness, right? Like as you mentioned, we don't really talk about whiteness. Um, oftentimes, white isn't even considered a race. Um, it's the normal, quote unquote, normal standard. I standard, uh, the de default is what scholars call it. And so I looked at how the crossroad was discussed by coaches and teachers in the early 20th century. Um, as I think we've talked about um, before the before recording, I this was part of my dissertation, and I have to get back to the archives because um, I need to go look at some more coaching, some more writing on this. But the way that these athletes or these coaches talked about the crawl itself, um, and how the quote unquote natural movement of what they would call natives, they even use the word Kaffirs to talk about African um, swimmers. Um, or Indians um, who did what might be like a an early version of what we call the crawl now with the overarm stroke and um, what they call thrashing. And then what happened, at least in the way that these, my, my analysis of what these coaches did, then they, let's see if I can say the right, if I can figure out the right word to say this, then they prioritize and privilege the way that white coaches and swimmers from Australia and in the United States took these natural resources of like Alec Wickman and other black swimmers, um, often unnamed, and special or and um, uh, basically rationalized the stroke and made it modern. And so with white intelligence and scientific um, rationality, they took the natural resources of BIPOC swimmers and made it into this, the crawl stroke, which is the freestyle stroke. And so, like, that's how whiteness and institutional operate, institutional racism operate through the body, and then eventually the crawl is basically my argument. Um, but more broadly, I've actually been thinking about humor a lot, and um, because I'm working on a project right now, uh, analyzing a sport media humor site, um, and humor is often used to, like, challenge the powerful, you know, that idea of punching up, and to point out all these encounters thinking that leads to them. Um, and I saw a great keynote a few weeks ago by uh, Dr. Rita Liberti where she showed a clip of Wyoming Atias and Edith McGuire Duvall, um, who were 1960s, black women, 1960s Olympic sprinters. And they were reminiscing about racism they faced from the coaches and media. And they peppered their memories with in-jokes and comments that demonstrated their friendship, but also revealed ways they could address racism then or ways they could not really address racism then because of their standing. Um, and, but they also, the, the little jokes were ways for them to kind of push back then. And then also how they see it now. Uh, and then we also know that comedians like Maria Bamford and Rob Delaney, Ali Wong, uh, Amir Rahman, uh, Rockman all use comedy to push back on, on like dominant constraining meanings of like mental health, grief, gender, and racism. Um, but in that blacks can't swim joke, uh, it, it, quote unquote, it's 
it's a site for reproducing the dominant power relations. We're like punching down. Um, and it's, it's lowest common denominator. It's hacky. It's flat. It's unoriginal. I mean, it's not even funny. Um, and the joke could be used as a way to punch up and reveal longstanding systemic racism and scientific racism, which is what I try to do. I'm, obviously, I'm not very funny, but uh, I try to use that joke as a springboard um, to kind of punch up and point those out. Um, but it's often used as a joke that allegedly points to different experiences and reproduces this notion about white people and black people are different. Um, but it also implicitly reinforces scientific racism, you know, like the studies from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, that black people can't swim because they have lower lung capacity or they have heavier bones. Or I read one study that talked about like literal skin differences, like um, about whether black skin could um, keep water out and how it would affect um, buoyancy, um, extra bones um, in heel or foot, those kinds of things. And then also cultural racism, like laziness and lack of agency. Uh, I mean, swimming's long had cultural associations with the meritocracy. I mean, the term sink or swim um, speaks to that uh, and hard work. I mean, Ben Franklin um, was an early swimmer and also an early swimming teacher and wrote a lot about this idea of learning how to swim could be a way to be a great individual um, while he's also talking about and writing about notions of freedom and liberty in a country that enslaved people. Um, based on the color of the skin. And so it does that work, but it also works, those jokes work as a corollary to talk about white swimmers and white people as a sign of their industriousness, their hard work, which to me is referenced back in the way in which the crawl stroke um, is a site where natural resources of BIPOC peoples are plundered and then capitalized by white coaches and swimmers. Could you talk about Alec Wickham and his influence not only on the supposed origins of the crawl stroke or freestyle, as we now call it, but also how he contributed to the sports creation myth? For, I mean, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, if I didn't mention like Australian sports historians Murray Phillips and Gary Osmond have written about this extensively. Um, they do some really interesting work on the sports creation myths. And actually, Murray Phillips has a really cool book. It's hard to get in America but it's about swimming Australia in a hundred years. Um, and then um, I also kind of came from this idea and a lot of my thinking comes from an old professor of mine, uh, Tom Oates, who's a critical whiteness and masculinity scholar where he always challenges, challenged us and me to think about making the familiar strange. So you see this familiar thing, like these creation myths that get told over and over again to the point where we don't even think about them. And then you want to like look at it from a sideways and try to quote make it strange uh, as a way to investigate uh, inequalities and power and those things. Uh, and so like um, I don't know I don't know how much how baseball, but most people in America, at least from what I understand, have heard about Andrew Doubleday as the inventor of baseball. Um, and like that's why the major that's at least the story is that's why the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown because he invented it there. We know actually that's not true. Um, but that fact that myth gets told over and over again is about American ingenuity and a mythic American pastoral past that benefits some groups, communities, and people over others. And so, like, if we think about that story of Wickman um, or Wickham uh, as um, this Solomon Islander um, who is, they talk about how he he moved to Australia at, as a as a young boy to learn how to. Uh, to, to go to school. History of Australia is not very kind to um, indigenous and aboriginal people, especially in terms of like trying to teach them how to be white through displacing them, taking them from their homes and and teaching them um, in an Anglo school. Um, and so, but the story is kind of that story or those possibilities of that aspect of it are kind of erased in the way we talk about Wickham. And then he's the original originator of the crawl. And it's like these stories about him as that's often would look at that, look at that kid crawl or look at that bloke with the stroke um, does similar racial cultural work. And so um, my sense in broadly is that it's a continuation of white settler relationships where indigenous or black or BIPOC resources are plundered uh, for the economic, social, cultural, and financial benefit and gain of white communities. So, the, story, the basic story is 
Um, at the turn of the century, Alec Wickman was swimming in a pool in Sydney, did a version of the crawl for a short race. Um, a lot of um, prominent coaches and swimmers in Australia were there, including the Cavill, many version stories say, including that Cavill family um, were there. They watched him swim. He won. It's very, it's very um, exciting for folks. And then the white families and white, white swimmers then perfected that stroke after watching Wickham do it. Um, and then they traveled to England and brought it to England. They brought it to the United, uh, to the United States, first on the West Coast, then they moved to the East Coast. Um, and so it's kind of as this notion that Wickham introduced it to white people, but then white people perfected it. Um, and I think that Wickham doesn't get enough credit, and neither do a lot of the other BIPOC folks who were, um, um, who, who kind of basically created that sport itself. Or that stroke stuff, I should say. I want to play devil's advocate here for a minute. Wouldn't it be fair to say that other swimmers at the time of Wickham brought about the improvement of the stroke? And by that, I mean, couldn't there be room for celebrating the advancement and or innovation of the crawl by whites? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, I think we should. I think I think what we're both getting to maybe here is that Wickham and the several unnamed um, swimmers, BIPOC swimmers, uh, were erased. Um, so we know Alec Wickham, Wickham name um, through the work of historians, scholars, and some like some some swimming um, administrators, especially down in Australia, uh, but they're too often ignored in a race. And so I think I think you're right in saying that there is space for celebrating them, but I think we also both know that we aren't celebrating them. Um, and it's more about how the creation myth is used to both further something of the white sport, at least in my sense. Um, it centers the white improvements and rationalization. So it's like, so we started with what Wickham did, but then we all made it better, right? Um, more so than the actual achievements of Wickham and other swimmers um, would be maybe one reason why that creation myth uh, needs to be troubled a little bit. Dr. Hodler, what role does USA Swimming, the International Swimming Hall of Fame, FINA, and others have in setting the record straight about the origins of the crawl stroke. Should they be held to account for the misrepresentation? Um, yeah, I mean, short answer to your last question, they should be held accountable uh, in that sense of like being called in and being like we, like in Pete, they should be, we should try to encourage them to tell this history more more often and in more places. Um, so yes, um, I think Ishoff or the International Swimming Hall of Fame uh, is improving based on um, what I've seen, um, especially some of Bruce Wigo, who, who I think was a guest on here, um, on your yeah. podcast also. Uh, some of his work down at, at down there and then also with Swing World. Um, from my sense, he's been trying to include more swimmers of color and voices from people of color at the museum, their events, uh, and also writing a little more about it in the um, in Swing World magazine. Um, to be fair, I mean, it's been a low bar, so like anything counts as inclusion. But I think he's been trying to, at least when we talked all, when I was down there in 2018, it looked like he knew that there was some huge gaps and he was trying to address it, um, which I think we should continue to push him, but also say. Hey, Thanks for doing that good work. Um, and um, they did induct Ishoff, the National Swimming Hall of Fame did induct Wickham as a contributor in, 2000, in 1974. So that's good. Um, his plaque states that he's, quote, credited with introducing the crawl stroke to the Western world. Not sure how I feel about that binary of Western, non-Western. Um, it seems like it could do some of that same primitive modern cultural work that leads to like racism and race ideologies. Um, but it's good that he's there, um, and it will like, ensure that folks will have to reckon with his name. Um, maybe Ishoff could um, work with Murray Phillips or Gary Osmond or one of their students um, who have been doing this work to create a permanent exhibit about the role Wiccan played in the creation of the crawl. Um, and also the several 
um, Native Americans and other BIPOC swimmers and African swimmers um, who did that style of stroke but were ridic- but who were ridiculed or ignored or forgotten, like Kevin Dawson kind of writes about a little bit too, um, and kind of put it in this broader context of um, colonialism and the sport and the, or the physical activity. Forbes Carlyle wrote a whole history of the crawl, and it's been a hard time for me, at least, it's been a hard time for me to get that book from my library. Still waiting for it to return to get to me, um, but you can find parts of it online, and it's very. One interpretation is that breaststroke was seen as more civilized uh, and more white early on, and so uh, white folks wouldn't deign to swim the, that the version of that crawl. Um, but then once it became noticeably faster, you could tell there was it, there was these other kinds of instruments or other incremental adjustments to the crawl um, to what we now see as the crawl stroke. And that would be a really interesting and useful um, exhibit, permanent exhibit at Ishoff, uh to be a reminder like that black and brown people have always been a part of the swimming community and maybe even better than saying not they've been foundational to the swimming community in the sport, not just a part. Uh, and I think that could be, Ishoff could do a really good job with that. Um, and it could be very influential. Um, for me, USA swimming is a little trickier because I know that they have that DEI um, section, uh, but it's not really their mission to teach history of the sport. And sometimes I don't know if people, I don't, I'm not sure if they should teach the sport, right? Like I don't know if they would do a good job with it. Uh, but they definitely could do more uh, to highlight non-white swimmers and coaches from its past, um, including before the 80s when it started existing. Um, they could build off. I mean, Paralympic swimmer Jamel Hill had a really cool summer 2020 Instagram story where he talked about Kevin Dawson's book and how um, that really influenced him and his ways of thinking about the sport. And he, he had some good interactions with folks on there. And uh, maybe USA Swimming could, like, build off of that and have, you know, all and Kevin Dawson have, like, a conversation. Uh, obviously, they, I'd want them to pay both those guys to do that work. Um, but they – or to create a page on their home site about American, African swimming past. And they could do all of this in months that are not February. <laughs> like, they could actually just talk about um, black swimmers and BIPOC swimmers all the time rather than just in February. Uh, and without the Swimming Foundation or the DEI hashtags and logos or banner – that often funnel those stories into one area um, that does kind of reifies that notion of these are black swimmers and everybody else are just swimmers sort of thing that that we know that Simone Manuel deals with that we've talked about uh, and you've talked about repeatedly on this podcast in really smart ways. I mean, they could also promote your podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you said that or at least publicly engage with it um, because the work that you're doing here um, – I was incredibly happy and just have learned a lot from the folks that you've talked that you've talked on here. And um, I don't want them to co-opt you or anything like that, but like they could, uh, I mean, you're doing really good work to kind of address these things. And I mean, I mean that could be something they could do too. Maybe they could throw you some money um, and uh, help you out with that too. That would truly be an interesting day if USA Swimming reached out and wanted to have my podcast on their website. Now, Part of this podcast mission is to not only highlight the triumphs and hardships of black folk in aquatics, but also to get people to see just how much whiteness plays a part and how we all view swimming. For example, if you ask someone who loves swimming to talk about Katie Ledecky, they'll talk about her dominance in every medium and long distance freestyle event, about her training regimen, her fierce drive to win. In contrast, when someone speaks about current women's 100-meter gold medalist Simone Manuel, they'll speak about all the above, but add the caveat that she is the first African-American woman to do thus and so. My question for you, Dr. Hodler, is this. How do we begin to normalize Manuel's achievements with those of Ledecky's? I mean, they're both amazing athletes, yet Ledecky's whiteness is never brought up, while Manuel's is constantly a conversation topic. Yeah, I think this is such a great question, um, and it has an easy initial answer, um, and I think you and Jen Fry kind of talked about it a little bit um, in the most recent podcast episode, um, and one of those is to stop calling Simone Manuel a black swimmer, right, or to make sure that you say Katie Lecky is a white swimmer. Um, so I, I used to, to 
do this exercise with students in my in a class that I taught where they uh, where they would have to bring in articles about Simone Manuel in 2016, uh, and we'd find ways to discuss this idea through looking at media coverage of of her. And um, unsurprisingly, um, Simone Manuel is really good at navigating this this terrain. Uh, she seems to both push the media community to consider racism, uh, while also being able and willing to meet people much more than halfway. Um, a friend of mine and I were working on, or had been kind of conceptualizing an article based on this. Uh, she's an expert in black feminist scholarship. She does mostly um, baseball and um, cycling, uh, but we were trying to work together on something. And she, she told me, she's like, well, that's, she said, honestly, Matt, you're a white, you're a white guy. You might not know this, but a lot of black women have to do that kind of work. Uh, and so she says that, very impressive that Simone Manuel is doing that, um, but if we look at Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, uh, and other black women in white sports, they're doing that same sort of thing. Um, and, but anyways, um, Manuel often mentions, and Colin Jones does this too in some of his places earlier on, that tension about being the, quote, black swimmer. Uh, and she's she seems like she's, she's talking about she's proud of being in, in a line of black American swimmers, and she mentions that line Marita Korea, Leah Neal, Colin Jones, Sabir Muhammad, most often, uh, are the names I see that she mentions. And she wants to carry on her tradition, but um, as you and Jen Fry talked about last week, and I know that you've said in other episodes, um, she explicitly and implicitly talks about the loneliness and the stigma and the burden of being the black swimmer at swim meets and on the national team, and has mentioned the desire to just be called a swimmer. And uh, we saw that uh, yesterday in the way she's covered at the trials where they, like you just mentioned the question, like we, they just don't, they talk about um, Simone Manuel as a black swimmer and they never once mention any of the other 98.7% swimmers as white. Um, and that does a whole lot of racial work while it also lets USA Swimming to, in the year 2021, pat themselves on the black for their racial progress. Um, even though the fact that in 20, 2021, 26, 2016, we're still celebrating these first, I think might say more about how far we haven't come than how far we have, have come. Um, and so like in my estimate, there's at least two ways to address your question initially, and I kind of already alluded to this. One is to erase Manuel's blackness and just call her a swimmer. And to me, and my opinion might not be the best one to follow here as a straight white that guy, um, but this might veer too much into that colorblind racism territory where we ignore significant parts of Manuel's life expectancies, experiences, and identity, and then perpetuate that broader racism through that erasure. Um, so like another, like that idea of like, I don't care what color you are, you're red, white, black, green, or purple, can sort of flatten and ignore those, that systemic racism. And so, like, Manuel's blackness is a big part of her life experiences, just like being a woman, just like being a Stanford grad are big parts of it. Um, but blackness, like, in this current culture might be, I don't know if damaging is the right word, but it might be damaging in different ways that reproduce that colorblind. So for me, at least, it brings it the second way to address that issue, which I, you've alluded to. Um, and I think it's the way I prefer, which is to identify Kayla Decky, Kayla Dressel, Lily King, Reagan Smith, uh, Holly Flickinger um, as white swimmers. Um, like sport and critical whiteness scholars have long pointed out that one way that whiteness and white supremacy operate and maintain powers through that normalization or that defaultization or um, uh, which is often achieved via its literal unremarked upon-ness. Like we're not going to even talk about the fact that Michael Phelps is white. We're just going to talk about how great Michael Phelps is. Um, so we're not even going to remark upon it or the fact that we celebrated <laughs> that uh, we had a black swimmer finally win a gold medal, a black woman finally win a gold medal in 2016 individual event. Um, and this this remarking upon it, this like doing that really uncomfortable for a lot of us white folks thing of making sure that we say that is a white swimmer or the white swimmer Caleb Dressel is a way of making that familiar strange. Uh, and it's important to remember that whiteness is productive. It also helps me at least remember that whiteness is productive and generative and its own race. Uh, that does that sort of work. Um, so maybe a good initial rule of thumb is like, if for instance, I'm speaking to Rowdy Gaines here, 
you feel compelled to mention the races or ethnicities of Simone Manuel or Leah Neal or Reese Whitley or Natalie Hines, then you definitely should mention the races or ethnicities of Abby Whitesell, Caleb Ecke, Caleb Dressel, Cody Miller, or Ryan Murphy, too. Um, but what do we do after that? <laughs> what do we do that? What, that's a, what do we do after that beginning step? Um, like I've already mentioned, I think your podcast and your great guests are doing good work on this, telling stories, um, reminding that black kids swim. Um, and then we need to use these stories to inform our future decisions, policies, actions to make swimming into a more inclusive sport, both formally and informally. I mean, it's great that Colin Jones and I think I might have heard one of your past guests talking about this, but it's great that Colin Jones and um, some Emmanuel go to uh, Philadelphia and do a swimming lesson one day, but then what does USA Swimming do once they leave? Um, and we need to start acting affirmatively and inclusively based on these stories and that knowledge. That'd be the next step. We here at Crossing the Lane Lines have been following the Cleet Keller involvement of January 6th since the beginning. It was reported in the Los Angeles Times that there is a plea bargain in the works. After U.S. Attorney Amanda Jawad asked for more time for finding a resolution of the case, Judge Richard J. Leon responded thus, quote, I want to reiterate my concern that this case has been hanging over this defendant's head for months. I'm sure it's had consequences for him in terms of his life, his employability issues. I can't emphasize enough for the government the need to move things along rapidly. Close quote. Dr. Hodler, in light of how the racial disparities in our justice system have been highlighted since the killings of George Floyd, Ahmed Avery, Breonna Taylor, and Dante Wright, to name only a few over the last year, this comment by the judge strikes me as tone deaf. First off, Keller chose to be at the Capitol. He chose to enter the foyer and wander about the halls of Congress. Even if he didn't harm anyone or damage property, he's still considered an accomplice. I have to ask... If the swimmer in question was Simone Manuel, Giles Smith, or Reese Whitley, do you think they would be afforded the same expediency as Keller? Uh, no. Um, I mean, I, I think I really liked your shut up, Donnie, from last week. Um, right on target in so many ways. Um, but I think the way you phrase it here in this question is, is right on target. And I know that Johanna Mills and I have written about this as well. Um, a little bit. Uh, he chose to enter that foyer um, and is still an accomplice of these actions. Um, also, he wore his Team USA jacket. Uh, he's six foot six. He did not cover his face, even during a pandemic. Um, he, like so many of those others who posted their unlawful participation in a coup attempt, uh, they posted on social media and text messages to friends, family, and they even used it in dating apps. Uh, they were proud of it. Um, so, Yes, he's still an accomplice, and he, like, just like you said. Uh, he and his companions stormed the Capitol while legislators were officially ratifying the fair election of our new leaders, partially, as you talked about in your Shut Up Donnie from last week, um, because to disenfranchise black and brown voters um, who overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden for president. Um, but there's been no widespread fraud ever been found. Um, and I know what you mean in your question, uh, and – I think we all understand, we all know the answer. Um, they would not be afforded that same expediency. Uh, and as many folks have admitted publicly, if the vast majority of the folks attempting the coup uh, looked more like Colin Jones than like me, and most of them did look like me, a vast, an overwhelming amount of them looked like me, um, they wouldn't have even made it into the Capitol without facing serious state violence. Uh, and we don't even have to really guess about that. Um, look at the way the federal government cleared D.C.'s Lafayette Park from peaceful protesters, a multiracial group, last summer. Um, there's reports that they used tear gas on peaceful protesters, which is a war crime. Um, but as you note in your question, the benefit seen in this expediency is part and parcel to being a middle class or above or middle class seeming white guy in America, to be honest. Um, and when I first read this story, uh, I couldn't help but think of how um, that young white rapist and Stanford swimmer Brock Turner's dad reportedly nearly broke down in tears talking about the toll that the sexual assault trial took on um, on Turner. I mean, Najee, he couldn't eat steak. That's how bad it was for Brock Turner. He had trouble eating steak. 
Uh, and then Turner got a slap in the wrist after raping that young woman. And so we see that elsewhere in the world, white guys who claim that they were, quote, canceled, find their way back into jobs or opportunities that most black men might not ever get in the first place. Black men and women, I should say, never get in the first place, but definitely wouldn't get the benefits of the doubt for that second or third chances. Um, so disappointed, but not surprised that the fact that this has been um, that this has been making that the fact that this has been hard for Keller to sleep is deemed as a worthwhile reason to get him a rapid trial uh, or plea and a plea agreement. If only the state was as concerned about getting George Floyd, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice. Philando Castillo to a trial or plea agreement stage for whatever crimes they supposedly commit rather than moving rapidly to execution stage and killing them. Finally, the Tokyo Olympics will be upon us soon, and the IOC or the International Olympic Committee has stated that they will not allow for any political protest on the winner's podium or any venue of the Olympic Village. Now, this is under the infamous Rule 50. So far, to my knowledge, Tom DeLay of Team Great Britain one of their platform divers, has come out openly in support of athletes protesting peacefully. How important is it for more white Olympic athletes to support black and brown athletes, as well as other marginalized peoples at these games, to go beyond being allies and becoming accomplices? Yeah, um, I think it's such a great question. And it's, I mean, this is one of the ways that whiteness perpetuates itself and reproduces itself is by keeping white people in in line, for lack of a better phrase. Um, uh, Race and Bowden was the white fencer um, who protested at the same Pan, Pan Am games that Gwen Berry protested in, and he, Race and Bowden's white, Gwen Berry's, Gwen Berry's black woman. And they were, they, I know Race and Bowden initially has been public about it. So I guess you could add, make it to the grand total of two white guys who were willing to speak out about it. Um, between uh, Tom Daly and this guy. Um, but you're right. Like, it's incredibly important. Um, I know in swimming, at least, Jacob Pebley, who I don't, who has, who has, who just had a great, um, very, uh, a great, probably not the best word, but a very moving kind of public disclosure of why he wasn't swimming anymore because of, he wanted to, he wanted to take some time off for um, mental health issues and stress. But he worked with Liam Neal last year, um, last summer on this, Swimming is swimmers for change. They had a really interesting, great hour-long segment uh, with Anthony Irvin, Colin Jones, and I think Liam Neal was the third one, and Jacob Pebley kind of acted as a host to talk about racism in swimming. Um, the, the, the structures of sport, um, well, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I've been thinking recently about like the role that the sport of swimming plays in the lack of activism uh, by white swimmers, uh, and even with, like, Cleet Keller's own actions on January 6th, uh, whereas you kind of alluded, like, a lot of the arguments for why Cleet Keller shouldn't be punished as much or, or maybe at all is that the only pictures of him are just milling about, although there have been some of him pushing um, cops and other stuff there. Um, but I was talking to a friend um, recently about the idea of conformity in the sport of swimming, uh, and I keep getting back to the ways in which swimmers are taught and socialized to conform, uh, which is in a sport is how whiteness reproduces. And so, like one of the ways is the look. The first one that I that I'm coming that I've been thinking about is look at the ways we are taught the strokes and the ways we train. They're all about conforming to a standard way of doing things. Um, I mean, a majority of sports training is of the sports training is quite literally put your head down and just work. Um, second one is a very hierarchical sport. Very few swimmers have a say in what they do in their training, and the very structures of workouts and training reflect this, too. Uh, we come in, do our stretching routines, wait until the coach gives us the practices, and then we follow the script and, like, the clock. Uh, and those power dynamics are quite obvious and are even present in the physical interactions between the coach and the swimmer. I mean, swimmers are dressed in a swimsuit, so they're kind of vulnerable. They're wet. Um, and they're quite literally below the coat, who is dry, dressed in street clothes, and is literally overseeing the swimmers and surveilling their progress and their bodies. Um, like number three, they go to many third. They go to many of the mainstream swimmer, or you can go to many of the mainstream swimming media sites, and they have these frequent columns or articles about what makes swimmers the great employees or students uh, as a way to promote the sport. But that's also. People who are quote unquote great employees and great students 
just follow the rules and just do what they're told, uh, at least the way that it's framed often. Um, and it reproduces a similar power dynamics as far as those conformists, at least in my analysis. Um, fourth, I mean, I, I don't want to give these guys a break, but being an elite athlete is, is physically exhausting. Um, and this is not to excuse white swimmers, um, but it does provide some context. I mean, many of these folks, their days are structured around sleeping, eating, swimming, sleeping, eating, sleeping, lifting, swim, and then sleep. And they are encouraged to break, to rest as much as possible. Um, and so like they don't, they use that maybe as an excuse to not get active, um, to stay ignorant. Um, they have several, several incentives to be and stay ignorant structurally, but also culturally. Um, the structural aspects, swimming being a sport where you kind of have to be an independent contractor, for lack of a better word, and you have to find your own sponsorship, also doesn't encourage it. Like doesn't encourage people like Cody Miller, who have a huge platform on YouTube, to speak out on these things um, because he might lose his sponsorship. So that might be one one ex these might be explanations for why white swimmers are such tepid allies at best, and rarely, if ever, accomplices, at least in my analysis. Um, but to, I mean, to answer your question, and I think Jen Fry spoke to this very eloquently last week, but it's extremely important for white athletes to get into the game and become accomplices. Uh, and we need to do more. Um, I know when I was a, a white swimmer, I mean, when I was a swimmer growing up, a white swimmer growing up, I noticed these things and would talk about them, but I didn't do, I don't think I did enough. Uh, I know I didn't do enough to kind of try to point out and create more opportunities and create better spaces for um, for black swimmer or for BIPOC swimmers. swimmers. Uh, but these elite athletes need to risk their sponsorships by speaking out on behalf of their fellow swimmers and citizens. Uh, they say they represent the whole country. I mean, when I interviewed Olympic athletes for my master's thesis, a lot of them spoke very eloquently and movingly about how much, how, how emotional they got when they put on the USA swim, swim cap or suit or arms for the first time and how they saw themselves as literally representing the country and how much that meant to them. And if they truly believe that, and I think they do, at least most of them do, they're obligated to stay, take a stand on these issues and represent those people. And that is all the time we have for our show today. Our guest today has been Dr. Matt Hodler, a former D1 swimmer at Miami University, noted swim scholar, and assistant professor of sports media and communication at the University of Rhode Island. Dr. Matt Hodler, we wish you and your family health and safety during these challenging times in our country. And thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much. Back to you and your, I mean, right back to you and your family, too. Thank you a lot. I enjoyed this. It's that time again. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. I had some contenders for the Donnie Award this episode, most notably the press that grilled Simone Manuel after her unsuccessful bid to make the Olympics in the women's 100 meters. But they got pushed aside for the winner. So without further ado, the Donnie Award goes to FINA. Now, that's the Federation for International Competitions in Water Sports. And here's why. You see, a black-owned swim brand company that creates inclusive swimwear had its swim caps rejected from being worn by the competitors at the Olympics. Soul Cap, which is designed to accommodate for diverse hair types in swimming, has been denied by FINA from their approval process to become certified to wear for competition swimming. Now, hold on, to be fair, some swimming caps of a certain size and specification are approved to be worn at the Olympics and international competitions. But these larger caps produced by Soul Cap are not allowed, and athletes can't compete while wearing one. So, you want to hear the reason why FINA got behind all this? They said, quote, Athletes competing at the international events never used, neither required to use, caps of such a size and configuration, close quote. Then they go on to describe the swim caps as unsuitable due to them not, quote, following the natural form of the head, close quote. I'm sorry, Fina, but when was the last time you came up into James Barbershop where I go to keep my head tight? I don't recall any of us asking your opinion on our hair. Just like I'm sure there weren't any black people in your boardroom when this decision was being made. 
Oh, and I have another question for you. Just out of curiosity, are you familiar with Andrew Johnson? No? Yeah, I didn't think so. You see, he's a champion wrestler from New Jersey who in 2019 was told by a referee that he had to cut his dreadlocks before his match or forfeit. Johnson's black and the ref that told him to get the shears is white. Dr. Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history, gender, and sexual studies at Penn State University, explains that hair is often used to uphold the racial status quo in sports. Dr. Davis writes, quote, the constant demand to tame, conform, and change their natural hair to accommodate or assimilate into white-dominated sports spaces is an all-too-common demand of so-called integration and a power move designed to remind athletes of color of their place and the terms of their inclusion, close quote. I'm sure Fina will say that this rule will apply to everyone, but we know who it's really meant for, and it ain't Candy Ledecky. So, in recognition of your absolute racism on the subject of black hair, we extend to you this well-earned award. And please, just... Shut the fuck up, Donnie. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.